absolute privilege to be joined again by Dr. James K.A. Smith. How are you, sir? Great, Luke. It's nice to see you again. Thanks so much. I feel like Calvin... Calvin College, Calvin University, like University like now, allegedly. Yeah, yeah. Congrats on that. I feel like I've done so many podcasts connected to this. Ah, I've seen Channing Brown. Yeah, yes. Kristen Cobes yeah. has been on a bunch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or we, we've done a bunch together. Mm-hmm. Uh, Austin Channing. I did one with Ellie Holcomb while she was performing at the oh, school. Oh, really? That's in fun. Some random room. That's and cool. So you've been on a few times. So yeah. for someone who is not a Calvinist, can I get like an honorary, at least like one <laughs> yes. part of Tulip or something? Yes. Is there any way I Let can Let me check and there? see if it's predestined and then I'll get okay. back to you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. What, uh, what is one thing people who aren't Calvinists need to know about the goodness of being connected to the Calvin University? Like, can, is there anything that we can, like, you can pass down to the rest of us? Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I do think you know. Sadly, uh, in in the United States, somehow Baptists who call themselves Reformed kind of stole what it is to they be did. Reformed from us. Whereas you know, for us, it's a it's a European tradition that is a really robust intellectual tradition. And here's the secret: we hardly ever talk about election. It's not that big of a deal to us. So okay. it's it's just funny. Uh, uh, um, you know, I, I always say I'm a Marilyn Robinson Calvinist. Uh, it's just, it's about a, a vision of really sort of cultural engagement uh, mm-hmm. more than uh, a view of personal salvation. So true or false, y- you have to quote John Piper every day. No, Kingsley. see, that- we don't have anything to do with that shit. <laughs> or sorry, with that. No, that's like that's like that's not our people. Do you know what I mean those are the people who ruined being reformed for us? <laughs> sorry, uh, I shouldn't we, be so. Hey, it was predestined for you to say that. Don't worry yeah. about it. Um, we we had. Um, uh, Kristen Cobes Dumay. So I'm from the Churches of Christ, and yes. so Kristen came out to Pepperdine University yep. uh, last year, and we did some sessions together. And Churches of Christ are not uh, obviously connected to the Reformed tradition. No, right. um, nothing but love for him. But and so we're doing this live event, and she's there. And I said, obviously, we need to at least bring on the table that she is Reformed. And uh, everyone got kind of quiet. And I go, it's because no one's perfect, and everyone laughed. <laughs> so uh, no, the, I've, I've got a lot of love for that school, and uh, yeah, I'm, that's I appreciate great. Coming back on the podcast, and congrats, like on the new book like thank the, you so uh, much the, yeah that the, the t- first the title how to inhabit time i like i, I like your stuff we, we've had you on the podcast before i think you're way smarter than me so don't fully uh, no, no, i, I no, can't no, always no. come up to your level but i, I know that you're smarter no, than no. me and one time uh, you and i we just discussed this off mic uh, we we passed each other like ships in the night at an airport we're both doing a conference in oklahoma and as you walk by we shook hands and i just felt my iq go up six points <laughs> Just from shaking your hand. So, no, 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 it's all good. You wrote a book about time, and the way you discuss time, like, I've never thought of engaging time the way you have. And you come at it from a completely different angle. You're more, um, I think your language is more profit and less like time management coach, right? Yeah. What made you write a book, a, a prophetic book about time like this one? What's the, what's the background for it? Yeah, it's um, it's a good question. I I would say because some people because I'm a philosopher, some people might expect like I'm asking what is time and stuff. Those questions don't interest me at all, mm-hmm. or they interest me, but that's not what this book is about. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think honestly, Luke, if I think of the real impetus for this book, it's probably therapy. 
really? counseling. I, I, I mean that really, really seriously. That there, the 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 hard soul work of therapy made me confront my own histories in a way that um, I felt like I had to grapple with the way that being human is embedded in time in ways that I hadn't uh, before. And then I realized, oh, actually, there's a lot of philosophical resources to kind of explore that and grapple with that. Wow. Well, you start the book and... I'm sorry. I didn't mean to make an edit. I, sorry, I no, was just, yeah. you're all good. You don't even need to edit. It's just like it creates a suspense for what's happening. <laughs> okay. it's, it's, it's really time. Counseling obviously is uh, it makes sense that that's the impetus for the book because you start with a real, like heavy story about you're in therapy. You're asked to to draw your childhood home. Uh, you have some background. Did you want to be like an architect or something? I did. Uh, yeah. At some point, long so you have. Uh, how 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 long did that last? So my, it seems silly to say it now, but my whole high school career, I was planning on being an architect. And um, I think it was that blend of art and science that kind of drew me to it. So what, yeah, when I, when I, when I went to, uh, when I was in therapy and one of the first things my therapist asked me to do was to draw like kind of a floor plan of uh, my childhood home. Those skills came back to me sort of quickly, um, yeah. but the, but obviously it was a much more existential endeavor that we were involved wow. in. Yeah, and I feel like I'm probably a little bit talking about this, but you include in the book, so I feel like it's similar yeah. to our game. But no, absolutely. Split level home, right? Isn't that what yeah. it was? Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, just to rip the bandit off, like you talk about like rooms in the house that y- you and your mom, sibling, did you have one sibling? Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Younger brother. Were you guys... Uh, after the, their marriage fell apart of your, your parents, you guys left, and then your dad and his mistress uh, now occupy the home, and your homes are your rooms are now occupied by the mistress's children. And that's heavy. Like even, you know, yeah. what are you talking about, 45 years, 40 years later? I mean, yeah. that has to be uh, even just painful to put on paper, right? Yeah. Yeah, it was... It was um I mean, it was really painful in the midst of therapy and working through it, but, but it was necessary, like, right, hard, good work. Uh, and, and it was the discovery of this history I carried in me that I didn't even realize. That's why I, I think uh, um, that's kind of the work that we all need to do, but I also think it's the work the church needs to do. Uh, yeah. I think we have we've buried stuff in our basements We've we've folded it away. We think it's in the archives, but it's actually you know in our bones. And uh, confronting those histories, I think, is is um, part of the exercise. Reckoning with yeah. them. Yeah, you, you said it was good for you. For some people, they're like, "No, I, I like that being buried down there." What about that was good for you personally? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was terrible for me. Yeah, in the in the time, you know, like it was correct. It's, yes. It just sort of like cracks open your heart, and your you you have to kind of put your life back together again. But it was good for me in the sense that I realized I carried habits of being in the world that had been handed down to me by these childhood experiences by so they were it was this past that was still with me and i didn't realize how much i was still living out 
fears, anxieties, you know, uh, uh, um, graspings, longings that that uh, um, had been sort of acquired in those early mm. sort of traumatic times, and and it's that kind of um, to discover that to learn that is also the beginning of living differently into the future. That's why it's yeah. right. It's you're not you're not fixated on your past. It's not like, oh, I'm going to dwell and wallow in my past. It's more like I have to reckon with my past in order to understand who I am right now so that I can now, with new intentionality, imagine a different way of being going forward. Yeah. I I bet some who probably aren't as comfortable with the idea of therapy or don't have any experience with it could look and say, okay, Jamie, you're a uh, father for your kids are basically all grown up, um, maybe a grandfather at some point in the near future, tenured professor, you've written some books, you got a PhD. How could what happened to you when, say, you were, I don't know, eight years yeah. old, how could that still be affecting you as an adult almost half a century later? <sighs> Yeah, you'd be surprised, though, right? I mean, I, fortunately, I think it's not affecting me as much now as it was seven or eight years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Because I've done this work. But I would say uh, um, uh, the way it was affected, a couple things. I, I'll be candid. I, I, I honestly like talking about this because I think we need to destigmatize mental health appreciate that. conversations, yeah, especially for those of us who are intellectuals and academics who think we can think our way out of everything. It's like, nope, you can't, you can't solve this by how smart you are. And, uh, for me, uh, very candidly, the, the sort of rage and anger that characterized my way of being in the world was a sign that something was wrong in the engine room of my heart. And of course, oh. you're never going to see that because I've got my polished professional life and I'm doing, but my wife endured that. Do you know what I mean? Like, it, I, it's not like I was abusing her or something, but all I'm saying is I but, always yeah. lived on the cusp of this kind of like anger, rage and stuff. But then also uh, the way it controlled me, the way it was shaping me was periods of debilitating depression, uh, uh, suicidal depression at one point. Where, um, because I had never sort of properly grappled with the sort of hole that was rent in my universe uh, by a father who left and and you know who, whom I haven't seen in forty years, so oh, that wow. that um, it eats at you in wh- success and you know the veneer of what a so-called successful life looks like is never the adequate measure of where a soul is where heart is and and i think that was uh, trying to take that seriously hmm. i mean the the parallel here well i don't i i don't want to derail the direction we're going go ahead what's the parallel i want to hear i, I was going to say cuz the other the other impetus for the book i don't know if you noticed but I'm constantly dancing back and forth between sort of the personal, the individual, right? Like my own spiritual journey, what what it means for us as individuals with God. But then there's also always a communal and collective and social dynamic, which parallels exactly the same thing. And, um, you know, somewhat early on in the writing of this book was the murder of George Floyd, Mm-hmm. And that was that became, as we now know, uh, um, uh, the the catalyst, the powder keg for now a collective reckoning 
with our stories, with our histories, and facing the stuff that we buried in the basement, or the things that we would rather, we I say we, I mean white Americans, that we would rather not face in our histories. And I think uh, um, it has been debilitating for us to pretend like our history is something other than what it has been. And it's not, it's not healthy for us to live into a future. So I think there's, you can imagine almost collective parallels to that sort of the soul work of, of therapeutic reckoning. Mm-hmm. Why, do you, why do you think there is a collective uh, analog to what is personally happening for you and maybe for many of us? Like, how, do you, how do you see the correlation between the, the collective and the individual? Yeah, because I think um, just as every human being is bequeathed a history, right? Like, I am who I am because of what I have undergone. Mm-hmm. And and what is what is unique about my identity is is the history that I have lived through. That's also true of institutions. So mm-hmm. institutions always have a background. Institutions have a past. Institutions have a history. And that history, by the way, is contingent. There's all kinds of zigs and zags to it. Uh, it's not, you know planned foreordained it's it's the way that history has bounced around and yet you know what the united states of america is or what the churches of christ are or what calvin university is all reflects some particular history and um that history primes us to act in certain ways to one another and with one another within these institutions and if we don't if we don't face that we we don't have the we don't have a way to grapple with the disordered ways that we yeah. face one another and, and live with one another does that does that make yeah. sense yeah 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 that definitely makes sense i i i do think um, the idea of like burying things that that comes pretty natural to me like yeah. that, that fits my my uh, the way I orient myself and the way I have been oriented towards the world uh, and so I see the the way that that's very comfortable for us to do and I, I see the way that uh, again both of us are, are white men how the history of our country is one that it is very easy for many of us to want to make that same move and so I I, I sometimes look and go yeah yeah I know that move like that's that's like that's one of my yeah. go tos yeah. and so I I too feel that you know salvation in general sense of the word salvation mm-hmm. for me is is always experienced by like bringing up to the surface those things and a lot of times the damnation that i experience the general sense of the word mm-hmm. is when i don't do that and so in the same way that the, a therapeutic resolution for you actually comes through counseling i think it can also happen for us collectively when we make the same move yeah yeah exactly and and it's it's not fun to do that work it's not you know it's you have to like give yourself over to the reckoning mm-hmm. uh, knowing that on the other side of the reckoning at some point, I mean, the reckoning takes time is hopefully a healthier way of being both for myself as a person and us as a collective. And mm. that work is also always going to be ongoing. Yeah. One of the things that, that I, I, I glean from your book is there is a propensity to want to distance ourselves from the past and kind of like just divide and say, this is over. I think like you talk about this like an escapism where sometimes there's the idea that, you know, this is before Jesus, we get Jesus and all of a sudden everything in the past is gone. But I love the way that you described like there is resurrection, there's new life, but it's resurrection with scars. 
like the yeah. scars from the past are still yeah. there, but there is an invitation to a new birth, but it doesn't uh, divorce ourselves from the past, but it actually somehow inhabits both of that. I- am I saying that close to what you're Absolutely. trying to say? No, that's, that's encouraging to me that that resonates with you. Cause I, I think, um, there are a lot of forms of American Christianity that imagine say conversion or salvation or however we may want to talk about that as if God just hits some reset button yeah. and now you yeah, get yeah. a new character in the game. Right. Exactly. Or, yeah, and it's, or it's, it's a blank slate. And uh, you can see Nicodemus seems to imagine that when Jesus says, you must be born again, he's like, well, so wait a second, we're going to turn back the clock. I'm climbing yeah. back in. Yeah. Whereas, I, work there. yeah. No, whereas I think, I think what's even more astounding is what does it mean for God to redeem and to restore and to renew is not that he just creates this new blank slate. He doesn't hit a rebut, reset button, but rather it is the restoration of me with my history, given my mm-hmm. history, which is exactly why it is a kind, it's more like resurrection than reset. And how do yeah. we know that God is resurrecting? Well, even Jesus bears the scars of his history yeah. with the Roman Empire. So <clears throat> in my Christian life, um, you know, the things that I have endured, even even in some ways, my sinful ways of being are actually kind of part of now what God is going to leverage and renew and redeem in such a way that I become, sanctification is now resurrection with scars, and those scars are precisely what might make me sensitive to my neighbor about this or passionate about that. And I, I, I think if it's not that way, if, if you know, God just obliterated our past, then I'm not saved. It's somebody else. Um, oh, wow. I think that continuity is really significant. Dude, that's great. Um, do you know what if I mean? Like not, if if, then, if 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 God just hit a reset button, it's like, oh well, now Luke saved. Um, well, if Luke, if that Luke doesn't have the scars, if that Luke doesn't know and hasn't experienced everything, that then you didn't save me. You just created yeah. some other entity. Um, yeah. That's not as miraculous as actually saving Luke or saving Jamie. Yeah. I- it's almost like the difference of hitting the reset button and new creation because new creation is born out of what we were before. And so there's a new version of me that comes out of my past instead of just like the reset button. Hey, let's just try this again. Let's just, you know, start from scratch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Uh, You've got this line that I think really accurately describes how probably I would have understood time Uh, for some context. You say you grew up in a um, dispensationalist, background that had kind of a, what is the word you use to describe that? Um, uh, and and for, the, for your listeners, right, dispensationalist is kind of like the rapture left behind, that kind of picture of waiting for the tribulation, waiting for the rapture and the tribulation happens. Maybe, did I describe it as kind of like an escape pod mentality escape or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what's crazy? So I, I grew up in the Church of Christ and I went to, when I was living in Philadelphia, um, we went to a a private Christian school when I was uh, fourth, fifth grade that had no connection to the Church of Christ. Okay. And they watched, they had us watch the Left Behind series. And I had no clue what they were talking about. Interesting. 
like there was a song and you've been left behind like there was a song that went with it and the ideas like I was just like I, I never heard any ah. of this stuff what's going on here um, so anyway that's not part of yeah. my background yet the escapist stuff is still there let me, let me read this quote um, this marvelously strange time-bending imagination of historic Christian faith is radically different from so many Jesus uh, Jesusified versions of escapism that resent time and romanticize eternity. Too many forms of Christianity merely endure the present as the price to be paid for reaching an atemporal eternity. I, like I think that is gospel. Does that, that resonate? Exactly. With, re- resonates with your experience as well. Yeah. yeah e- e- even if it's not "quote unquote" dispensational, like that is still the idea that yeah. we have to suffer through reality right now. We pay the yeah. price for it, and then we get to the good stuff at the end. It's almost like you have this pie in the sky, and yep. so eat your vegetables right now, so you get there. Oh, first question about that: What do you think is so toxic about that way of experiencing time? Um. So a couple things. One is. Um, I think it ends up not having a place to affirm the goodness of creation. So this is this is, I guess, a, mm, one of the reasons yeah. why I I feel like the trajectory of my thinking propelled me into thinking about time, is because I think from my very first book twenty years ago, I have always been trying to think through the affirmation of the goodness of creation. Right, that when God makes mm. this material world, it's pronounced very good. And I think the reason I've cared about that is because, like like you've suggested too, there are so many forms of American Christianity that really are sort of functionally Platonist and sort of resent being embodied. Oh, sorry. They're, they're functionally dualistic in that they think souls are good and bodies are bad. And so they, they sort of secretly want to get out of their bodies and become angels or whatever it might be yeah i i just think that that is um well fundamentally unbiblical but i also think it's very unhealthy because now you have all these kind of repressive relationships to things of uh, features of being human yeah so because i i'm trying to think through the goodness of creation i think if you have this sort of escapist mentality you don't have any affirmative place for time or history, you don't realize that God, I'm not going to say needs history, but that God sets up the cosmos to be unfolded in history. So so think about this. I don't know if this is too much theology for the afternoon, but um, in Genesis 1 and 2, when God calls the cosmos into existence... That's also when the clock starts ticking, so to speak, right? That's the creation okay, of time. Sure. Yeah. And, and after he, he uh, uh, calls the uh, creation into existence, it's pronounced very good. Mm-hmm. But when that pronouncement of being very good is made, it is not finished. It's not complete. Do mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Like, it's clear that there, the, there, there is a lot that has to happen for creation to fully become and be realized into what God wants to be. And the way we know that is because what is pictured as the fullness, the telos, the the fulfillment of creation and revelation is a city, right? With Mm -hmm. all of these rich features of a cultural reality. So the very good creation in Genesis 1 and 2 is begging for history. 
It's actually mm. begging for time to have the time to unfold and unfurl all of its potential and capacity, and that's what human beings are made for. So I think if we don't have a place to affirm the goodness of history and time, then we become blind to all of the ways that the spirit is afoot in history. That the way that the way the spirit is sort of nudging and guiding and leading and active throughout uh, history. So I, I do think that's one serious implication. Okay. The, the other negative facet, though, I'll just before I forget it, my old man brain. The thing that worries me about this kind of escapist, you know, get out of time, what are we doing here? It does turn into either a kind of political passivity or or, um, it fails to care for our neighbors in the meantime, right? Because, look, I think the world's just going to burn up. I'm waiting for the rapture. Why should I care about creation? Why should I care about my neighbors? We're all just trying to you know, catch the escape pod out of here anyway. I think that's a disastrous way to love your neighbor. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's uh, pretty, pretty short sighted. Um, the, the degree to which you engage time is something that I haven't, like, I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I haven't thought through this stuff. Um, I, I've understood, okay, it, creation is good. Um, the material is good. Uh, humanity yeah. is very good. I believe God is redeeming all things. Yep. Um, I also don't think that God is discarding the past. I think, I, I believe in the restoration of all things. And so things shouldn't be discarded. I, I don't think I value time the way that I feel like you're helping me see that you're you're trying to be this prophetic voice to help me to see the value in it, well, you have the uh, Annie Dillard line that like there's no mm. age or time more holy than than right now. Um, yes, I, yeah. I, I God is available holy. everywhere, anytime, anywhere, and there's no age that is more holy than any other, right? Because God is just yeah. always available. Yeah, like C.S. Lewis has a line about like God's presence. God is like it, it's imbued in all things, and uh, God might be incognito or something like that. But we, but, but God is always there. Like th- that is, yeah. Even what the mystics teach us, like there is, yeah. there's that. Um, but I, I, I feel like you're helping me value the past more than I, I probably do right now. Um, can you kind of coach me up on ways? I know you don't want to be a coach. How, can you be a prophetic, uh, a prophet, giving me ways to? Un- I understand it was just a metaphor. But- yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yes. Uh, so, so I, I, part of me, what I just wanted to say, Luke, was um, I, I don't think there's. I, I'm not trying to be prophetic. I'm just older, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm half kidding when I say this. But I would say it's interesting. I also don't think. I was in a place to appreciate these things until I had undergone time itself. So, and mm. that's, that's one of the things I talk about a little bit in the book that it's, it's kind of frustrating and scandalous to us that so often there's a kind of insight that only comes at the end, right? That the mm-hmm. insight and illumination only dawns once you've come through the thing. And it's why I, rem- I remember being, uh, um, I remember being 30 years old and think I had everything figured out. And then, you know, some older guy comes along and he's like, yeah, you know, settle down. Calm down. There's there's a lot, and mm. I I remember being so frustrated by that, and it's like, well, what? I, are you saying I'm stupid? I can't figure this out, and I realize now. Oh no, wait a second. There's just a kind of understanding that comes from going through it, undergoing it, and um, so I I do think that's part of it. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think American culture mitigates against our taking our temporality seriously. I think we, mm-hmm. I think I think so many aspects of American culture resent being finite, resent being bound by the conditions of our bodies and time, uh, and and I think we're always sort of fighting against that. Um, what I, what I want people to see is. I really want people to kind of rest in being mortal. Do you know what I mean? It's like, like yeah. to, to, to I, I ultimately, I hope the insights of being temporal beings who live in history comes with a kind of like rest where, Oh, it's okay to be finite. It's okay to not be able to see everything right now. It's, it's that there are going to be seasons in my life where I just have to like, go through it, uh, uh, undergo it. And I don't have to have it all figured out in advance. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Uh, maybe this is, you know, you're the philosopher on the pastor. Maybe I should having to wrestle with this one, uh, in terms of what our, our jobs are, but maybe if you wouldn't mind, uh, how would you help us rest in, in our finitude? I know you talked about in the book, um, you know, the practice of keeping death before you, um, you also have a great line from Augustine who says something about uh, love, which you will lose. Is that right? Yeah, that cool? yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah I, I yeah, love those ideas. Yes, how, yeah. Like, how do we, how do yeah, we embody that? Yeah, that 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 um, insight about loving what you'll lose that, that comes from chapter four, which is don't tell anybody. I think is my favorite chapter. I loved writing that chapter. Um, I think part of learning to rest in our temporality is learning to be okay with being mortal Mm -hmm. to not resent our mortality. And by that, I don't just mean like realize you will die, but to realize that when you are human, you are going to experience things coming to be and passing away. And you know what? For a lot of things, that's okay. That's natural. Do you know what I mean? Like, not not everything yeah. is meant to be eternal. Not everything is meant to be uh, uh, um, uh, incessant. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, like like you, we were talking about child rearing, and you're you're in a in the thick of it with with younger children, and my kids. You know, I'm an empty nester, and I look back on it, and um, I don't resent the fact that my kids are no longer at home. I think of what joys and challenges there were in that season, but I also think it would be um, it would be sort of messed up if I kept trying to hold them in, right? And to, yeah. to pres- yeah. it's like no, no, no. I love the teenage years, and so I'm just gonna. I need to hold on to this because when I do that, if I just keep trying to reproduce the experience of this thing that I hold in my hand now, you know what I would be robbing myself of is the utter joy of sitting down with your son who's 30 and who knows a bunch of stuff that you don't know and is and to sit back and watch the life that they've made for themselves and you realize i'm not in control i'm not even responsible for this and i absolutely love this season of my life and if i had thought oh i could only be happy in this season i would have been you know spurning the gifts of the seasons that are to come 
Okay, getting a little emotional right now. Um, we're going to push through this. But uh, there's a word there, e- even for me, like m- my kids are not 30, but I at 14 and 8. And so my 8-year-old, uh, most nights, like she literally falls asleep on my, my chest. And oh, I, wow. I might be creating problems for, for the future, but you know what? That's what therapy's for. You know, I'm cool with that. Because right. I love that. It's moment, a daddy's my, privilege. I know, yeah. We're, we're cool. My 14-year-old, though, like that's, that's not really her, her thing. But you know what? She, she'll text me and call me bruh. And I, I think that is the coolest <laughs> thing in the world, and I love it. I but love they're, it. they're different in the same way that you could think, I, I love having a little baby, or I love having a 30-year-old. Each one uh, has a unique blessing to it, and part yes. of like in, uh, inhabiting the time that's in front of you is yes. to not live in the past, which typically re- creates resentment, or live in the future, which typically creates fear, but to, to, to inhabit right here. And you make this this great comparison to fast food versus slow food mm. and fast food, like the priority is availability, I think, yep. but slow food, which um, maybe I want you to define that in a second, but the, the value of slow food as I was reading is seasonality. Like you yes. can't always have, like I love avocados. I have them every morning, but in, in real life, like you don't get avocados every morning. There's something different. Like that's not how it works. Yes. So what is like this idea of living into the seasonality of life? Yeah. I, to me, I, I hope for folks who get to read the book, I hope this is one of the insights that feels like almost a practical help and gift mm-hmm. because to me, the seasonality, this is um, Alice Walt waters who, who founded Shea Panisse in Berkeley. It's kind of the beginning of the farm-to-table movement a little bit in okay. some ways. And she talks about eating seasonally is learning to enjoy the intensity of the gifts that are available to you in that season. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of... So you, you eat strawberries when they're in season, and they're freaking amazing. Do you know what I mean? Like Like the local strawberry in season... Instead of saying, I want strawberries all the time, but they just taste like water because they're grown in some sort of hot house, you know, situation. And, sure. and actually, because then when you when you try to make it available all the time, when you keep grasping after it, you actually don't ever get the true gift of how it tastes. I, I think um, I think God kind of deals with us in seasons of a life. Hmm. And I think it's very natural. I mean, God, of course, is faithful and steadfast and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But we are not. And the way we experience God, it's very natural for my relationship to God and God's presence will change in different seasons of my life. I, I think a lot of people, maybe, especially people who grow up in Christian faith, you know, maybe their youth is characterized by a certain kind of intimacy and exuberance and a, a very sort of like emotional experience with God. It's, it's almost like a puberty experience of, yeah, of yeah, God, yeah. which is natural. That's very, very natural. But then what happens is so much of American Christianity tries to freaking freeze that particular way of being a Christian. And now we replicate it over and over and over again. And the only authentic way to be a Christian is to keep trying to act like you're 22 years old in this extroverted relationship with God. Whereas, you know, you, you talk to some aged saints who will tell you, yeah, I remember a season in my 60s where at the same time God felt a million miles away and was buried right in my soul. And you're like, if you're 22, you're like, 
I don't even understand what you're talking yeah, about. Like I don't, don't and in fact, there. you're probably judging this person. It's like, oh, I guess you don't really know God or you don't really love God. And then you get there yourself to that season. You're like, oh, I get, yes, I am actually learning something of God here that my 22 year old self couldn't have known. I, I think giving yourself permission to live into a season goes a long ways to like helping mitigate some of our anxiety when our relationship with God changes. Um, yeah. I, 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 otherwise, I think so many people, they kind of have this self-loathing because they're like, oh man, I'm not feeling it like I used to. That could be liberating. That could mean that you're actually being liberated into a new way of relating to God's own faithfulness. And, and I, I hope people experience that as a liberation. Yeah, that's so good. Uh, you got the, I think it's uh, Kierkegaard who said, um, like, we understand life uh, backwards, but life has to be lived forward, right? Yes. So we look back and yes. we understand what's happening, but we don't have that luxury. In the yes. So that's part of the, uh, you know, 30 or 20, like, you, especially I did, like, I felt like I had everything figured out. And now, yeah. like, at 40, there's a, the Barbara Brown Taylor line about, uh, I used to have a ton of things that I was really certain about, but as I got older, like that, that chest of certainty shrunk down to like a little shoebox, and <laughs> like there's some grace, like it's it's that. But like you said, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We we did this song uh, in a service from uh, Maverick City, where the line is like, "God, you keep getting better." And so people are like, wait a minute, does that mean God was not perfect before? Right? And, and, and they're like, you're missing the song. Like the yeah, song is that like yeah. as we yeah. grow, like God is the same, but our experience with God changes. Exactly. And there's something about like the certitude of like, you know, the cocksure 24-year-old me who's like, I, I know everything, I got it all figured out. Um, to like as you get older, like things kind of slip away, but there's and as they slip away, something else is found and exactly. there's life in that. Exactly. And and it's and it's um uh, you would be shutting out the possibility of that new illumination if you just kept mm-hmm. nostalgically trying to preserve the past. I, I, I think um, this is why, uh, in, in relation to this in the book, I say, look, you can never transcend time. You can never get above the flux of history. Nobody gets to be nowhere. Mm-hmm. But you can almost cheat. You can almost time travel. If you just make friends with people who are older than you, so true. right? There's yeah. something about multi generational friendship that is is like a kind of time travel because now I can talk to the elder saint who's been through it, right? They are on the other side of the season that I'm in, and they can report back to me from the future. It doesn't mean that I don't have to undergo it. I still I can't short circuit it. I'm still going to have to undergo this experience, but I have a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel, and and in some ways those those friends from the future as it were help me to recognize oh this is a season right mm-hmm. oh okay so this isn't going to be forever okay okay that maybe gives me some patience to undergo it mm-hmm. so how do you love the things that you're going to lose knowing that it's yes. temporary, knowing it's seasonal yes. Uh, yes. to take the metaphor about strawberries I, I'm going to have strawberries for you know however yeah. many weeks yeah. and then I know they're going to be gone yeah yeah, I, I I think of it as you know you you um, greedily receive the gift as it comes, but you're always holding it with an open hand, and so you're not clinging to it. You're not uh, um, trying to to uh, uh, um, 
preserve it. You, you are receiving the gift as it's given and you receive it gratefully. The moment you start to cling to it, it becomes that idol, right? It starts to become a substitute because now you're imagining God doesn't have more future gifts for you to come. Now, by the way, I don't want to make it sound like this is all easy because I will tell you the worst thing I imagine in my life is uh, my wife's passing or my passing. Do you know what I mean? Like, like I just, I, but I, but I also think a lot about what does it look like for us to be faithful to one another at the end? And it will be terribly painful. Um, you imagine we live ripe old lives. We're married for 60 years. You know, we're Queen Elizabeth II. We go out like Queen Elizabeth II. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There will be something in which I, I can, even that I could hold and receive gratefully with the open hand because of the hope of resurrection. Now, I do think, I don't want to say that all of our losses are like that. Um, there are losses that are tragic. They are, they are rending the fabric of the cosmos and they are not the way it's supposed to be. Then we lament. We absolutely lament in the face of that. But we lament still with our hands outstretched. Uh, and even we're we're reaching out to the God that we are protesting against in the same moment. So uh, um, it's it, the dance of being human is is um, one we could only do with the Spirit. Yeah, yeah. There are times when I do funerals where it seems very natural to, to begin the service and say, "Today we remember a life well lived." Yeah. And you go, "Oh, this is great!" Like so. Yeah. And then, you know, I did a funeral for uh, an older gentleman who just lived a good life. His his son was he, he's probably twenty years older than me, but he's a, a dear friend and leader at our church. And like, I, I love the family. I love the parents. I love the, you know, the grandkids are one of great grandkids. Just like everything's perfect. And you know, he he passed away and his legs were crossed, like just comfortable. Mm-hmm. Like he'd always sleep mm-hmm. every day when he'd take his mm-hmm. afternoon nap. It's like, oh, that's how it's supposed to be. And then, uh, and then you do a funeral. Uh, not too long after, and it's for uh, you know a friend who's maybe twenty years older than me, whose life ended in suicide. And you go, well, yeah, that's that's not um, how the story is supposed no. to end, and no. it doesn't seem right. And you want to protest and no. lament, and yeah. those are just like the. It's like the duality of of life is that sometimes the ending is is like satisfying. And to make a terrible metaphor, it's like, you know, Game of Thrones, like people love the show, but the ending caused so many people to be, you know, upset that they're like, oh, you know, forget this series because the ending wasn't good. But then you have other shows where like the ending is right. Yeah. That's interesting. Sometimes the ending is just not good. And that's that's life. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. You wrote a book about time. Yeah. You're a reformed theologian. I'm gonna just. This is. We're gonna jump into this uh, open theism just for just a, a, oh. you know, a brief second here. Okay. okay. So open theism um, relation. Whatever. I'm not like all yep. into that. Um, yep. I've got friends who are, but it's the idea that you know God engages with us. You know, in connection with time in the incarnation, that God humbles God's self to be a part of time as God engages us. And so there's like some texts about how God didn't know things, and that it seemed like God surprised. These are texts in the Old Testament. Um, uh, when you think about time and God's engagement with time, do you feel like God like incarnated God's self into time as such a way that caused God to be open to the future so that things were not set in stone? Or is that something that you feel like is, I know you guys typically like, to, what is the word, anthropomorphism about those texts where God's just like scriptures? Yeah. I, with us. So I, uh, I, it's not that I don't want to play along. I, I just feel like I don't really have 
uh, dog in this fight only because I, I, you're I, smarter I, than me. I, you're no, smarter no, no, no. Than I, I'm not. I'm school. not. No, it's, you're, you've thought about some of these things in ways that I have not. I am sure. Uh, uh, there, there's there's aspects of this debate on both sides that feel uh, slightly scholastic to me in the sense yeah. that they are they're framing a set of questions that I think almost uh, predispose us to bad answers no matter what the answer would be. And so that's why I, I kind of, uh, uh, um, I'm not punting, but I absolutely think that what is mm-hmm. utterly singular about Christianity is that um, we have a cosmic theology in which the God who created time itself made God's self subject to time and history, right? And so the, the radicality of the incarnation in the terms of God actually giving himself over to the vicissitudes of history, I think is an utterly, utterly singular uh, mm-hmm. um, expression that, that characterizes Christianity. And I think on that, all Christians can agree. And therefore, the way we experience it Spiritually, I, I don't know how to work out all the the sort of theological eyes uh, uh, dotted eyes and cross T's here, but in, in terms of a spiritual life lived, I think the incarnation makes all the difference in our confidence in God's presence with us uh-huh. throughout time and history, because God has sort of subjected Himself to time and history, and to keep it trinitarian. I do think pneumatology is absolutely central to this because the ascension of Christ means it's precisely why the sending of the Spirit has to be part of um, uh, that the, the intimacy of God's presence with us. So, I love that passage in the Upper Room Discourse. I've been thinking about this a lot, where Jesus says to the disciples, I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. I love it because that is the incarnate God saying, first of all, recognizing that we are temporal, right? He says, I see that you're in a moment. I see at this moment, you can't handle it. Mm -hmm. I've, I've got stuff to give you you can't handle. And so God's response to our temporality, I think, is overwhelmingly compassionate, right? He doesn't sort of like... It's not the fire hose. I have many things to tell you, but you cannot bear them now. And then it's in the very next line that he says, and the spirit will guide you into all truth, right? I will send the spirit who's going to guide you into truth. I think it is the spirit of God who adventures with us into history. So I think probably whatever it is that you find sort of um, life-giving and provocative in open theism is probably something that I also find in an expression of that incarnational trinitarian account of god's presence with us in history first of all that's a great answer uh that's a good one that's <laughs> i good. passed okay good yeah, it, right, was good. Right. it was good yeah okay. I, I really, you, you say it's a scholastic debate i've always used the phrase um <clears throat> it seems like an intramural debate it's just you know it whatever. is yes that's a maybe a better way of putting it and yeah yeah, uh, yeah. It was presented to me 20 years ago in grad school, like, hey, this will help you deal with the Odyssey. Like, if people know that God's kind of surprised too, just like you're surprised, it'll be easier to stomach when they lose someone they love. And I was like, mm, 
Yeah. Did it really? Like, yeah. I don't think anything really makes suffering yeah. easy to stomach. Yeah. Like, it's just God's with you in suffering. That's all. That I think yes. that's the answer. Yes. But, uh, yeah. On yeah, that we I, agree. I think, on that we agree. Definitely. Yeah. So I. I mean, honestly, I would never preach about this stuff, but it is fun to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, discuss and. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. I appreciate the exercise, right? Like, I, I, I didn't mean to short circuit the intellectual exercise of it. And it, if we were in a philosophy class, and especially, it's like, oh, yeah, that's what philosophy is for, thinking through some of these questions. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's fair. So next time you're in Austin, we'll great. have an adult beverage and we'll work through that. that. But uh, seriously, the, the book is great. Spiritual timekeeping is just this concept that I think is really helpful. Wonderful. And honestly, going into the book, Kronos Kairos, the, the difference of like calendar time and like urgent time. I had that, but like the rest of this is kind of okay. new territory okay, for that's me. A, so well, I that's really encouraging like- to me because I mean, you're you're a thoughtful pastor, and uh, I'm I'm really just trying to catalyze the beginning of a conversation. So I would love it if if um, if it does that kind of work. That's really really yeah. encouraging to me. Thank you. Yeah. No, you, you did something good. Uh, again, the, the title: uh, How to Inhabit Time. Well done. Congrats, man. And, Thanks so uh, much. I really enjoyed the conversation. Really uh, appreciate your your the spirit of it. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Uh, go write another book so we can do this again soon. Okay. Done. Deal. All right. Thanks, Luke. All right.